Well, we come now to sit under God's Word, uh, to receive His words of life, which are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and cut to the soul and division of marrow. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 2? Last week, at the end of Matthew chapter 1, we saw Jesus' origins and His mission. Matthew told us the story of how Jesus was born to a virgin girl named Mary, and how her fiancé, Joseph, married her and took responsibility for the child by naming him. Joseph was told by an angel of God that this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, and that he would save his people from their sins. One of the things that is sometimes a bit surprising as we read through the Gospel of Matthew is how much we have merged together the accounts of Matthew and Luke. So if you were waiting on the birth of Jesus, be careful that you don't miss it. Matthew tells us it's going to happen in chapter 1, verse 25, and then he tells us that it already happened in chapter 2, verse 1. We don't get a bunch of details about a census driving Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, or Jesus being born in a manger, or shepherds hearing the announcements of the angels on the night of His birth. All that is found in Luke's account of Jesus' gospel. But the story we come to today is unique in Matthew's gospel. These wise men, or magi from the east, who come to seek the King of the Jews. And in this story, rather than focusing on the details of Jesus' birth, Matthew focuses in on two major themes about Jesus. Last week, he spoke of Jesus as the Savior of His people. But this week, we come back to the theme he began with in the genealogy, that Jesus is the Son of David, the long-awaited King. And alongside that theme of Jesus' kingship, Jesus brings to light, or rather Matthew brings to light, all of the various responses that we are going to see to Jesus. And those two themes, Jesus' kingship and the responses that people have to Him, are going to bring us face to faith with the universal claims of the Gospel this morning. So before we hear from God's Word, would you pray with me and ask God for His help in understanding and believing it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love Your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, that we may hear Your Word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this passage today, we're going to see three things. I talked about those two major themes. First, we have some preliminary questions as we read this text. Questions about these wise men from the east and this strange star that they are following. But then we're going to see two contrasts that Matthew focuses in on. The contrasting kings in this story, and then the contrasting responses in this story. I mentioned how different Matthew's story of Jesus' birth is than Luke, but it can be a little disorienting at first to jump straight from the announcement of Jesus' birth to this story. We read those first two verses and we think, wait a minute, what? What's a wise man from the east doing in this story? How do they know there's a new king and why do they care? And what's going on with this star? They act like it's Jesus' personal star and I didn't know that stars rose in the sky or moved ahead of people. So in order to orient us to what God is trying to tell us through Matthew, we need to get a couple of those questions straight. We'll start with the wise men from the East. Who are they? I think most of us probably have an image in our mind of who these men were. If you grew up around Christmas pageants and nativity scenes, you probably assume that these are three men who are essentially kings with really expensive robes, maybe coming from Eastern Asia. If you haven't seen any of those things and have only heard the term wise men from the ESV translation or maybe from the King James Version, then maybe you are picturing scholars and philosophers. It's another reading of the scripture right there. Uh, maybe you, as you hear that term wise men, are picturing scholars and philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. But what we need to do when we read the Scriptures is be careful of our assumptions and instead ask who Matthew tells us that these men are. The word the ESV translates as wise men is the Greek word magoi. If you've read either the NIV or NASB translations, they leave that word untranslated. And they just say that these are magi from the east. And magi weren't kings. 
and they weren't college professors. The word was used in Persia to refer to a group of priests, but don't think of the biblical category of priests. Instead, these were pagan people who specialized in things like astrology, which is trying to predict events based on the stars and astronomical movements. They also interpreted dreams. Magoi, that word, shows up again in the Greek version of Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar is calling people to come and help him interpret his dream. One of the groups of people he calls is these Magoi or these Magi. And Magi can also even refer to sorcerers and those who practice magical arts. You can see that our word magic, our English word magic, comes from the same root. We see this word referring to magicians in Acts 8 and in Acts 13. So these men Matthew is talking about are most likely astrologers and dream interpreters, maybe even sorcerers who are probably in the royal court of a pagan king, maybe in Persia or in Babylon or even Arabia. We don't know their social standing, but they do seem important enough to get an audience with King Herod. And the gold and spices they are carrying are the gifts of the wealthy. And the reason I go into detail about who these men are is that we need to be careful not to soften what Matthew is saying. When we think of wise men or kings or philosophers, we probably have positive impressions. But Matthew's readers would almost certainly have had a negative perception of these magi, which is why their response to Jesus later on is so shocking. They are pagan Gentiles, not Jews, and their job was doing something that was forbidden by God for anyone in Israel to do. Magic arts were definitely off the table for God's people, and reading the stars as a way to discern God's will was at least mocked by God throughout the prophets as ridiculous, if not forbidden, as wrong. So these are not good characters in an Israelite's mind. So we're going to use the term magi instead of wise men because I think it helps us to picture them for what they actually were. Pagan astrologers and dream interpreters not scholarly philosophers or kings. And the second question you have right off the bat in this story is likely about this star. What is going on with this star? I just said that the Magi were astrologers. They studied the stars and believed that they could predict events based on their movements. One thing that was especially important for astrologers was that movements of the stars and planets that were unexpected was a sign that something important or cataclysmic was about to happen. And so, in verse 2, the Magi say that they are looking for the king of the Jews, and then they tell us why. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. In verse 7, Herod asks them when the star appeared. And then in verses 9 and 10, Matthew says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And the first thing you might be wondering is, 
How does the presence of a new star tell them that a king is born in a specific country like Israel? And while Matthew doesn't tell us the answer to that question, we do have some Old Testament background that connects Israel's promised king to the rising of a star. But before we see that, one of the important things that we see in this passage is that when these magi come and they mention a star and ask Herod where the infant king of the Jews is, Herod isn't confused. He doesn't say, what in the world are you talking about? He very clearly understands what is happening and what they are referring to. And so he gets the biblical scholars together and asks them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. He clearly sees a connection between the promised Messiah and the king they are looking for. This tells us something really important about the prophecies of the Old Testament. If you're anything like me, you can sometimes think that these prophecies seem random and not straightforward when you first read them. We wonder if we are sometimes cherry-picking them just because they seem to work looking back in hindsight. We're going to talk a little bit more about the idea of fulfillment next Sunday, but it's important to see that King Herod, along with these chief priests and scribes, all have a shared understanding that there is a single Messiah and King who they are waiting for. They also seem to know that the Old Testament has promised specific things about what he would do, where he would come from, and what they should expect from him. Everyone is waiting on this Messiah. And so when Herod asks where he is going to be born, they all seem to agree that Micah 5.2 has the answer. We'll look at that quote in a minute, but there's another Old Testament prophecy in the background of this passage that connect the king and the star. In Numbers chapter 22, we get this strange story. The king of Moab, one of Israel's enemies, is scared of the Israelites as they are approaching the promised land. And so he summons an international prophet named Balaam to come and curse Israel so that the Moabites can defeat them in battle. It all goes horribly wrong for this king from Moab, the Lord won't let Balaam curse Israel, no matter how hard he tries. So he keeps accidentally blessing them when the king tells him to curse them. After the king of Moab finally gives up and tells Balaam to go home, Balaam gives one final oracle, and it's a prophecy from the Lord about the Messiah. He says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This passage, this oracle tells of a star rising from Jacob in connection with the rise of a king who would conquer the nations. While we can't be sure, it's likely that these magi, these foreigners from outside of Israel, know 
about this prophecy. Remember that Israel, hundreds of years ago, had been exiled into Babylon and then into Persia. Many of them were spread abroad for hundreds of years, even after some of them returned. So it's not unthinkable that these foreign people would have interacted with the Jews and known about their expectations for this coming king, this coming Messiah. And so the star was a sign for these men of a long-awaited prophecy, a king who would rule from Israel and defeat the surrounding nations. But another question is still in our minds. How do we make sense of what Matthew says about this star and the way it behaves? This doesn't seem to be how stars work. It rises or appears, somehow leading them to the west. And then once they meet Herod in Jerusalem, it somehow directs them southward toward Bethlehem. And then the text seems to indicate that the star is moving because it stops directly over the house that Jesus is in. What is going on here? This is not how stars typically behave. People have given all kinds of theories about this star, and our in-house astronomer, Eric Klumpa, was extremely helpful in helping me think through these theories because I don't know how stars typically behave, but Eric certainly does. So feel free to ask Eric about the normal behavior of stars if you have questions. But without getting into all the details, we need to realize that there are two general options for how we are to take this star. Since Matthew is writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he's not making this up or somehow mistaken about this star. So either this is some naturally occurring astronomical event that God orchestrated to happen exactly when Jesus came into the world, or this is a supernatural event where God intervened into the normal workings of the world exactly when Jesus came into the world. A naturally occurring event that God orchestrated, or a supernatural event where God intervened into the normal workings of the world. Both of these are ways that God works in the world throughout Scripture. God uses ordinary secondary causes to bring about His purposes. This happens when a famine comes in Genesis 42 and drives Israel and his family into Egypt. But God also uses miraculous events and intervenes into the normal workings of the world that He created. Like when He causes the sun to stand still in the sky so that Joshua and Israel have time to defeat the Amorites in Joshua 10. This star that the Magi follow might be a normal comet or planetary conjunction or a nova. Again, ask Eric what those things are. These things that naturally occur, and, na and God orchestrated them to naturally occur right at the time that Jesus came into the world to signal His birth. Or, it could be a star that acts unlike any other star in the history of the world to providentially lead these men to Jesus. It's interesting to think through these possibilities and how these things could have worked, 
But since the Bible doesn't tell us, it's probably not something to get too caught up in or distracted by. The point of the star is not how it occurred. The point of the star is the person to whom it is leading. And what we see in verses 10 and 11 is that this star leads them to Jesus. They aren't disappointed when they find a common child in a house with his mother. No, this is the king that they were looking for. We see this clearly in how they react. Verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And while this story has interesting questions about where these men come from, who they are, what this star was, we want to be careful that these questions don't distract us from the most surprising parts of this passage. What we see when we look through this passage is attention-grabbing contrasts. And we're going to look at two in particular. First, we're going to see the contrast between the two kings in this story, Herod and Jesus. And then we're going to see the contrast between the various responses to Jesus. We see this primarily in Herod's response and the response of the Magi. But Matthew tells us about two other groups of people and how they respond to the coming of Jesus into the world. So let's look first at these contrasting kings. We see right away with the terms that show up in verses 1 and 2 that Matthew is setting up two kings. Verse 1 starts, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Right off the bat, we hear that Jesus was born during the days of Herod the king. And who is it that the Magi are looking for? The new king of the Jews. And even though Jesus is a small child here, Matthew knows where this story is going. And so we see an intentional contrast between the kingship of Herod and the kingship of Jesus. Herod is known to history as Herod the Great. He was appointed by the Roman Senate to rule over the province of Israel in 40 B.C. and then actually began ruling over them in 37 B.C. Herod died in the year 4 B.C., which is one of the ways that we're able to narrow down a date for Jesus' birth, sometime before 4 B.C. Herod, we know, was half Jewish and half Idumean, which means he was from Edom, which, as we just talked about, was one of Israel's enemies. And by all accounts, Herod was a talented and ambitious leader. But he was also ruthless and violent. Herod was so paranoid about the threats to his kingship that he had several of his sons killed, as well as one of his wives. He actually made an order that when the day came that he died... Hundreds of Jewish leaders were to be executed so that there would be mourning at the time of his death. Thankfully, no one obeyed the order after Herod died. But next week, we will see 
how Herod ultimately responds to Jesus by killing the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. In this passage, we see him troubled when he hears of a new king and then scheming to find out where he is, even pretending that he is interested in worshiping him just so that he can eliminate him. Herod was a king who destroyed everyone he thought might be a threat to his own power and authority. Jesus was not that kind of king, or rather Jesus is not that kind of king. We've already seen that in contrast to Herod, he was the legitimate king. He came from the line of King David and was made king by God himself, not by the Roman Senate. Jesus was also a humble king. The Magi came to Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel, and where you would expect to find a king. But instead of being there, Jesus is in a common house in the little town of Bethlehem. But the most interesting note of contrast in this story comes in the quotation that the chief priests and scribes give to Herod about where the Messiah was to be born. They quote from Micah 5, verse 2, and say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. But they don't finish the quote the way that Micah does. In Micah 5.2, it finishes by saying about this ruler, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. But look how they finish the quote and describe this ruler. He is a king who will shepherd my people Israel. It's possible that this quote comes from later in Micah 5, where the ruler is said to shepherd his flock. But most scholars believe that the chief priests and scribes are taking this sentence, this phrase, from 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel 5 tells about the coronation of David when he finally becomes king. And the people are shouting out and they are contrasting David's rule, David's reign, the way that he is going to be king, with the reign of King Saul who came before him. And they say that the Lord says to David, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. No matter where it comes from, it seems obvious that these chief priests and scribes are saying that this new king is going to be different than Herod. He won't rule ruthlessly with an iron fist. Instead, he will care for the people like a shepherd cares for his sheep. This is the kingship of Jesus. Instead of destroying others who he is afraid might be his enemies, he gives up his own life for those who are certainly his enemies, you and me. This is the kind of king that we serve and follow. And we always need to keep this in mind because it turns out that the way that Herod thought about power is not that much different from the way that many people in our own day, even us, can think about power. We don't serve and follow a king who manipulates us and oppresses us and uses us for his own gain. There are times when people talk about Jesus' kingship and rule as if it is that. No, Jesus is the kind of king who gives himself for our good. He never calls us to obey for his own selfish gain or for vengeance, but always for our own good and care. 
He is your shepherd who tenderly guides and protects you and always leads you on right paths, even when those paths go through the valley of the shadow of death. So we see this contrast between these two kings, Herod and Jesus. But the other contrast we see in this passage is the contrast of response. I said last week that Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, sets the tone for discipleship in Matthew. He obeys the hard call of God even when it is risky and costly for him. In this passage, we see both good and bad responses to Jesus that will set the tone for the rest of the book about the various ways people will respond to Jesus and the surprises about who responds in what way. The first and most obvious response we see in this passage is from King Herod. When Herod hears the long-awaited Messiah has been born, the one who is the true king who will rule and shepherd Israel, he responds with anger and scheming. He's afraid that someone will take away his power and his authority. And so he does whatever he can to destroy that perceived threat. He thinks Jesus is coming to take something away from him. And so he violently protects what he has. Herod is a picture of everyone who is hostile to the kingship of Jesus. The second group we see are the people of Jerusalem. And Matthew barely mentions them. But they follow in the response of Herod. Just as verse 3 says that Herod is troubled when the Magi come to find the king of the Jews, so it says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. That's all we hear of the people of Jerusalem. We already established that the Jews of the day knew that the Messiah was coming and knew all the things that were promised about him. He would save them from their sins. He would be a shepherd to them. He would put an end to wars and oppression, and his kingdom would have no end. And they hear that he has finally come, and they are generally troubled and disappear from the scene. The people of Jerusalem are a picture of everyone who has slight interest in Jesus, but wonders if he might somehow cause them trouble. The third response we see is from this group of chief priests and scribes. These are rival groups in Israel comprising roughly the same groups as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Herod gathers them together as the experts in biblical understanding and interpretation. They know exactly where to go in the scriptures to tell him where the Messiah will be born and even get a little dig at Herod to say what kind of king this one will be. They are intelligent and well-informed, but apathetic. They don't rejoice with the Magi or join them on the five-mile walk to Bethlehem to worship the promised Messiah. They simply offer a correct answer and then disappear from the narrative for now. They are a picture of everyone who knows the content of the thing, but does nothing about it. The final group is the group that responds correctly. And they're the ones who we shouldn't expect to. The Magi, these pagan astrologers. They see a star and leave their homeland to find 
this new king. They aren't dissuaded when he isn't in the royal city of Jerusalem, but keep moving toward tiny Bethlehem. When they finally arrive in verse 10, their joy is actually hard to translate. It's something like, they rejoiced with a large joy very much. When they saw Jesus and Mary in verse 11, they fell down and worshipped Jesus. Then they open up costly gifts that they've brought for this king and lay them before him. This is the appropriate response to Jesus. The first application of this is personal. Which one of these responses tells us about you? Are you holding Jesus at arm's length because he threatens something that you hold dear? Your independence, your money, your success, your sin. Are you enamored with finding answers to your questions, but indifferent about actually following Jesus? Or are you willing to sacrifice your time, treasure, and even safety if it means finding and following the true king? The second application is no less personal, but it's much more large scale. I've mentioned a few times that these magi would not have been well thought of by the Israelites. They were pagan astrologers and were not a part of God's chosen people. But they are the good guys in this story. There is some irony in their statement that Jesus is the King of the Jews. That phrase doesn't show up again in Matthew's Gospel until Matthew 27. Pilate and the Roman soldiers, more Gentiles, called Jesus the King of the Jews, even making this the sign at the top of His cross. And the reason why it's ironic is because the whole gospel continually teases out that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's also the king of the Gentiles. Remember, Matthew's final word in Matthew 28 is the main point of the book. The resurrected Jesus doesn't stand up and say, all authority in Israel has been given to me. No, he stands up and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. Jesus will not be confined to the borders of Israel. His kingship will not only affect ethnic Jews, his kingdom is a kingdom that drew in and continues to draw in all nations. He rules over everything in heaven and on earth. And so the call to you is twofold. First, it is come. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who is born the true king. Leave your sin and your independence and your treasured possessions and come to him. Come and fall down and worship him. Come and find your true rest in Jesus. And second, the call is to go. Go to the nations. Don't just go to those you think make sense to become Christians. The Magi didn't make sense. They weren't well-suited to embrace the gospel. 
They were the most unexpected of people to come to Jesus, and those are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus loves to call to Him. So go. Go to your neighbors and friends who want nothing to do with religion. Go to your coworkers and classmates who don't agree with you about anything. Go and tell them that a light has shone in the darkness, and the true king of the world who lays down his life for his enemies is here. Would you all pray with me? Father, we see Jesus with such a veil over our eyes so often. We pray that we would see him clearly for who he is. The true and gracious and humble king who is the answer to all of your promises. And we pray that we wouldn't just know the answer and sit in apathy, but that we would go. That we would go to Jesus and then that we would go to the nations and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We can't do that on our own, so we pray that your Holy Spirit would do it in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We know that this table, the Lord's Supper, that we celebrate each and every week is a reminder of the gospel. It's not just a reminder mentally. It is a picture of the gospel. But how so? How is it a picture of the gospel? It's a picture of this king who instead of staying high and lofty and demanding obedience from us, stooped himself and came to us and gave up his life for us. So it's the broken bread that was his body and the poured out wine that was his blood. But it's also a picture for us of how we come to Jesus. Of how we come to God. That no matter how successful you are, no matter how well-credentialed you feel like you are, if you come to God and don't come in the name of Jesus, covered in His righteousness, you will not be accepted. And the opposite is also true. No matter how uncredentialed you think you are, you're the wrong person with the wrong kind of background. No matter how many failures and mistakes you have in your past and even present, if you come to God in the name of Jesus, you will be accepted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this table has a barrier before it, but the barrier is for those who refuse Christ. So if you're not a Christian, if you are not coming to God in the name of Christ, I ask that you wouldn't take the Lord's Supper this morning. This is for those who have put on Christ, not those who are perfect, but those who trust in Jesus and come to God in His name. I ask instead that you would pray, that you would call out to God and ask Him that He would show you his, your need of Him, and that He would draw you to Jesus.
For the rest of us, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to our Lord God. It is indeed good, right, and our delight that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we praise and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Merciful Father, we confess that we are not even worthy to gather, gather up the crumbs from underneath your table, but you are a God who delights in showing mercy. So we come to you not trusting in our own righteousness, but in the merciful, freely given righteousness of Jesus. We pray, give us faith that we may spiritually feed upon the body and blood of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, that we may more and more dwell in him and He in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.